Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Well, it's certainly my honor and privilege to have the opportunity to chat with you in this format, and I'd like to give you my personal thanks that you're doing it. Uh, Today is the 24th anniversary of your confirmation by unanimous Senate vote uh, as an Associate Justice of the Supreme Court. So you've been there almost a quarter century. How would you characterize the role of the court in American society now that you've been a part of it? Whoa. I don't think it's changed uh, any over, over, over that period, and I think, it's, uh, um, I think it's a highly respected institution. It was when I came, and I, I don't think I've destroyed it. Uh, um, I, I, I've been impressed that even when we come out with uh, opinions that are, that are uh, highly unpopular or even highly, um, what should I say, uh, uh, Emotion raising, uh, the the people accept them as as uh, as as they should. Uh, the case that comes most to mind is is the uh, the election case, uh, Bush versus Gore. Uh, nobody on the court liked to uh, to wade into that. Uh, uh, controversy, and there was no way the court was going to come out uh, more popular than when it went in, no matter which way it came out. But uh, there, there was certainly no way we could turn down the petition for certiorari. What are you going to say? The case isn't important enough to take? <laughs> and and uh, I, I think that uh, um, the, the public ultimately realized, even those who felt passionately that it should have come out the other way, that uh, we had to take the case. And uh, I, I think the court... Uh, uh, the court's reputation survived, which, after all, is why it has its reputation. I mean, you you don't have it to put it up on a shelf and admire it. You you have it precisely so that uh, when there comes a time that difficult decisions like that have to be made, uh, it's 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 a sort of armor that uh, uh, enables the decisions to have the kind of public acceptance that they ought to have. Uh, I was uh, very very proud of, uh, of the way uh, uh, the, the, the court's reputation survived that, even though there are a lot of people today probably still mad about it. Um, so I'd say it's uh, uh, one, of, one, of the, one of the most respected institutions in, in American life. Justice Robert Jackson once said, I think in perhaps the last lecture he gave before his death, that the Supreme Court was not only a law court, but the apex of a branch of government. Is the fact that the court is uh, at the top of a, of a coordinate branch of the federal government uh, shape, or should it shape, our, our notions of constitutional interpretation? Or is it purely a law court? Well, it's, um, you know, any, any appellate court um, does, does more than decide the case in front of it. In, in fact, that's the to my mind, the least important thing that the court does. Any appellate court uh, shapes the law, uh, which is why appellate judges ask uh, hypothetical questions, you know, which, which lawyers don't like. But the reason you ask them is, is because, uh, frankly, uh, 
sir or madam, I, I don't care whether your client wins or loses this, this case. I, I am not about to give victory to a seemingly deserving party in this one case at the, at the cost of causing injustice in, in hundreds of cases down the road. So the primary role of an appellate court, and especially that appellate court, which is at the apex, is to decide cases on, on, on grounds, on bases that, uh, that will produce justice uh, overall in the long haul. And uh, the opinions have to be clear enough uh, that the lower courts can follow them. And you know, it's one reason I do not like uh, totality of the circumstances tests, which we, which we occasionally use. It gives no guidance whatever to the lower courts, and, and therefore uh, does, does, does not lay a sound foundation for, for justice. Thinking about the court as an institution, uh, we, um, we actually had a brief conversation at lunch about televising arguments before the Supreme Court. And uh, um, I wonder if you'd share some of your thoughts about the wisdom or lack of wisdom of allowing cameras into the, into the courtroom. I was in favor of uh, cameras uh, when I first arrived. That's one of the perhaps few things on which I've changed. Uh, <laughs> over the years, I've come to believe it's a bad idea the argument usually made in favor of it is, uh, you know, we want to educate the American people uh, concerning the court. Now, if I really thought that, uh, that it would educate the American people, I would remain in favor of it. But I've come to realize that it, it really will not. Um, if the American people sat down gavel to gavel, if they watched the entire feed of our, of, of, of our cases, you know, uh, yes, they, they would learn what the court is like. They, they, they would come to realize that we're not spending most of our time speculating about whether there ought to be a right to, to suicide, whether there ought to be a, a right to this or that, you know, whether there ought to be and therefore is. Uh, but rather that in fact we spend most of our time on pretty dull, very legal stuff like the Internal Revenue Code, the Bankruptcy Code. And uh, no one would ever again come up to me and, and say, as, believe it or not, f people frequently do, why, Justice Scalia, why do you have to be a lawyer to be on the Supreme Court? The Constitution doesn't say so. No, if you think we're, we're contemplating our navel most of the time, uh, you know, uh, uh, contemplating grandiose philosophical principles about whether this, that, or the other right ought to exist, Sure, well, you don't have to be a lawyer, but in fact, most of the time we're doing law. And uh, so, they would be educated. But for every 10 people who, who watched us gavel to gavel, there would be 10,000 who would see 30-second takeouts that would appear on the nightly network news. There's no way to stop that. And I guarantee you that those takeouts will not be characteristic of what we do. They will be uncharacteristic. It will be, uh, you know, man bites dog. So, so why should I be in favor of something that I think will distort the public perception of the court? Do you think it would... Um... Besides which, I, I must admit, I, I, I have something of an old-fashioned uh, notion that uh, familiarity breeds contempt. 
I, 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 I think there's something to the fact that the institution is, 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 uh, is somewhat remote and, and it isn't coming into everybody's living room every night. I, I, I'm, uh, anyway. Do you think it would alter the way that counsel would uh, argue before the court? Some, I think, sure, it certainly would. Do you think it would make it better or worse? Uh, I think make it worse. I think they'd be grandstanding. I think they'd be uh, uh, showing off. I, I don't want to see counsel show off. Just, just, just the facts, you know. Just the facts, man. Right, right. As Sergeant Webb right. said in Greg. Uh, some people propose, uh, this has been current in academia mostly, and so one wonders whether it'll ever have any traction in the real world. But uh, some people in academia have proposed that the justice's terms ought to be limited. And there have been various inventive proposals as to how that might be done without amending uh, the Constitution's guarantee of life tenure. Uh, however it's done. Do you think that's a good or a bad idea? Well, you know, so long as you grandfather, uh, you know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we'll stipulate to that. You're, you're, you're grandfathered in. <laughs> I, it, it, it has always seemed to me that this is a solution in search of a problem. What is the problem? Are there, are there too many doddering uh, the justices on the court? I don't uh, in the time I've been there, there's nobody who stayed around longer than uh, than ought to have been, and and uh, they were all still uh, uh, hitting on all cylinders uh, when they left. Brennan could have stayed around longer. Uh, Lewis Powell could have certainly. Sandra could have. What what is the problem? The problem is that uh, presidents don't don't get enough appointments. If if is is that the problem that uh, you know Jimmy Carter had none and. Uh, uh, I, what is the problem? Uh, I'm un- not sure there is one. Uh, unless it's the age of the justices, I do not, either that or the fact you want every president to have a certain number of appointments, unless it's one or the other of those two things, I, I, I don't see what it, it accomplishes. Or maybe there's a third. I don't well, what's a third? Maybe you want, uh, you want, I think there's a great advantage in, in, in having a, a huge time span. I mean, when I came on the court, there, there, there was uh, someone who had been appointed by Dwight Eisenhower. I mean, uh, Bill Brennan had been appointed by Eisenhower. The court makes, const- in its most important aspect, its constitutional decisions, it makes a judgment for, a, a, you know, a society over time. And I think there's a lot to be said for having sitting on that court uh, men and women who represent the society over time, and not the, not just the current, uh, the current society. I mean, the current society express, expresses its its wishes through the legislature. You, you no doubt about what that society wants. But if you do believe that a constitution places some limits on the current society, in light of the society over time, you it seems to me, would prefer a court that represents the society over time. So. You're well known for, for um, what has been variously characterized as being a, a textualist in constitutional interpretation. Some characterize you as an originalist. Um, there, let's def- sharpen that a bit and suggest that Originalism is the search for the original meaning of provisions of the Constitution. And um, I believe at one point you may have defended your methodology 
because you believe in an enduring constitution, as you put it, rather than an evolving constitution. I hope I'm not quoting you no, incorrectly. Very well put. Uh, so, well, but I want to hear more from you. I, I wonder if you could explain the, what you mean by the concept of an enduring constitution. Well, look, in its most important aspects, most of which are in the Bill of Rights, I suppose, the Constitution tells the current society that it cannot do what it wants to do. It is a decision that the society has made that in order to take certain actions, you need the uh, extraordinary uh, effort that it takes to amend the Constitution. Now, uh, if, if you, you give to those many provisions of the Constitution that, that are necessarily broad, such as due process of law, cruel and unusual punishments, uh, equal protection of the laws, if you give them an evolving meaning so that they have whatever meaning the current society thinks they ought to have, they are, no, they are no limitation on the current society at all. And the whole purpose of them is eliminated. If the cruel and unusual punishments clause simply means that today's society should not do anything which it considers cruel and unusual, I mean, it means nothing except to thine own self be true. You know, we think thumb screws are bad, but you know, if you think thumb screws are okay, God bless you. Uh, uh, it's not cruel and unusual if you don't think it's cruel and unusual. So, you know, I, I interpret it the way it was understood by the society at the time. And if you don't... It, now, this doesn't mean there, that there aren't new things that come up. Of course you have to apply the text to new phenomena, which the founding generation didn't even know about. But as to the extant phenomena, whether the death penalty is cruel and unusual, whoever... Whoever voted to make it impossible to have the death penalty, or to make it impossible, for that matter, to have the death penalty uh, f for anyone uh, younger than uh, 21 years of age, whoever voted for that? Nobody. You, you, you make out of the Constitution something that it was never meant to be. And it's all done uh, by a Supreme Court, which is probably, of our, of our political institutions, the one least capable of understanding what the current society really wants. We're not supposed to know what the current society wants. That's not how we're supposed to vote. So why are you going to, you're going to entrust this institution with keeping the Constitution up to date if that's what you want to do, which it shouldn't be? You know, even if that were the object, you've, you've picked the worst institution. D do it the way England does it, if, if, if you want to keep the Constitution. Make nothing of the Constitution. That is to say, the English Constitution is whatever Parliament says. There's no such thing as a, as a law of Parliament that violates the Constitution. Parliament is the trustee of the Constitution. Well, if you believe in the evolving Constitution, that's what we ought to have here. Marbury versus Madison assumes that, that what the Supreme Court is doing is lawyers' work. Lawyers' work, not uh, uh, evolutionists' work. 
Anyway, I, you know, I, well, go, I go off for another half no, hour. No, no, I'm sure you get it. I'd be happy to listen to you. But, yeah. but I, I, I want to pick up on that with a, a question about uh, the uh, meaning of the 14th Amendment. In, in 1868, when the 39th Congress was debating and ultimately proposing the 14th Amendment, I don't think anybody would have thought that equal protection would have applied to sex discrimination, or certainly not to sexual orientation discrimination. So does that mean that that we've gone off on a in error by applying yes. Yes. to to both sex to, to sex discrimination? Sorry to tell you that. No, no, uh, that's fine. I'm I'm happy to. But to you hear know, whatever if, you have if to say. indeed the current society has come to different views, that's fine. You do not need the Constitution to reflect the wishes of the current society. Certainly, the Constitution does not require sexual discrimination on the basis of sex. The only issue is whether it prohibits it. It it doesn't. Nobody ever thought that that's what it meant. Nobody ever voted for that. So where do you get it from? If the current society wants to outlaw discrimination by sex, hey, we have things called legislatures. And they enact things called laws. You don't need a constitution to keep things up to date. All you need is a legislature and a ballot box. Things will be as up to date as you like. You don't like the death penalty anymore? That's fine. Uh, The constitution doesn't require it. It simply doesn't forbid it. If you want to eliminate it, you know, vote to eliminate it. You want a right to abortion? To tell you the truth, there's nothing in the constitution about that. But that doesn't mean you, you cannot prohibited. Persuade your fellow citizens it's a good idea and pass a law. You've got the right to abortion. And that's what democracy is all about. It's not about a nine, nine uh, uh, superannuated judges who have been there too long right? <laughs> uh, uh, in, 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 in imposing these, uh, uh, these demands on society. I don't know how we ever came to that notion that it's... Uh, uh, anyway, well, as a methodological matter, let's let's take for the moment that you're correct, uh, and that we should trust me. Trust uh, me. Okay. <laughs> oh, well, you're correct. So our search now is for original meaning. Mm. What do we do when 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 the original meaning of a constitutional provision is is either in doubt or is unknown? What? How do we proceed then? Look, well, this is the argument often made about originalism. Oh, God, what are you, are you a historian? You're not a historian. You look back in here. I do not pretend that originalism is perfect. There, there are some, some questions you have no easy answer to, and you have to take your best shot. And in some cases, the phenomenon did not exist at the time. You're going to have to figure out the trajectory of the First Amendment, you know, uh, uh, I mentioned at lunch uh, uh, famous old case New York versus Sia when uh, uh, the city of New York in the 20s enacted a, an ordinance forbidding the use of sound trucks after 10 o'clock. It was challenged on First Amendment grounds. Well, what did the framers think about sound trucks? I mean, you have to figure out the trajectory of the First Amendment. They didn't have sound trucks. They did have nuisance laws. Would they have, you know, so? Some questions are hard. The only other uh, uh, true blue originalist on the Supreme Court is Clarence Thomas, and he and I have disagreed on on what uh, what the approach of originalism would be. You want to, want to hear about that? There's a very interesting case. Sure, sure. Tell me. 
ever since I was a little kid growing up in New York, you'd see political posters on the telephone poles. And they always said on the bottom, you know, published by citizens for Schwartz or whoever, whoever. And it, it was the law in every state and, and in California as well until your Supreme Court held it was unconstitutional. So it came before us. Uh, a, a woman asserted that she had the right not only to conduct political campaigns, but to do so anonymously. So all of these laws had been around for ever since we had, almost ever since we adopted the Australian ballot, almost a century, every state had them. The Supreme Court held, Clarence wrote the opinion, that it was indeed unconstitutional to forbid anonymous campaigning. I dissented. Um, I dissented because I, when, when I can't figure out what the framers would have thought. And I really couldn't on this because we didn't even have a secret ballot back then. You know, uh, voting was uh, by a show of hands or by voice. It wasn't even secret. So I thought if, if every state has done it for a century and I, I have no indication that it's wrong, it must be constitutional. Justice Thomas came out the other way because of the Federalist Papers, which were written by Madison, Hamilton, and Jay, but were signed Publius. Uh, he was of the view that uh, anonymous uh, political tracts were very important to the founding generation. So, you know, originalists can have fun, too. We can argue and, and, <laughs> and disagree with each other. Would you think that you... But no, well, let, 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 sorry, let, me, let me finish. It is, it is wrong to demand perfection of originalism. Well, we don't have the answer to everything, but by God, we have a answer to a lot of stuff. A lot of stuff, especially the most controversial. Whether the death penalty is unconstitutional, whether there's a constitutional right to abortion, to suicide, and I could go on. All, all of the most controversial stuff. You go back and look. Nobody thought that that's what the Equal Protection Clause meant, what the Eighth Amendment... Easy, easy answers. I don't even have to read the briefs for Pete's sake. <laughs> So, whereas, if you are an evolutionist, you don't have any answers. I mean, you don't have any answers. When we, when we held that there was no constitutional right to uh, assisted suicide, we said we are not yet prepared to announce a constitutional right. You know, stay tuned. In the fullness of time, in another 20 years or, or whatever, you know, every day is a new day for the evolutionist. You know, last, last year, well, once the, de the death penalty uh, couldn't be imposed at 21, then it couldn't be imposed at 18, and, and uh, everything changes. Ponta Rye. Uh, so, uh, oh, you're right, originalism is not perfect, but boy, it is so much... It so much more perfect than evolutionism, where you're just, you're just looking up at the ceiling. And it's a new day. Every day's a new day. I wonder if the death penalty is unconstitutional yet. <laughs> well, but let me pursue another difference, if you will, between originalists. Justice Thomas has, has said that he thinks that, uh, that at the time of the Constitution's creation, and he's 
uh, argues that this is borne out by the Constitution's text, that the Constitution permits Congress to regulate commerce among the several states, but not commerce that might have a substantial effect or, or, or activities that might have a substantial effect upon interstate commerce. And you don't seem to agree with that view. So is he wrong? And why is he wrong? He may well be right. Brother Clarence, I don't want to go too far. I don't want to say he doesn't believe in stare decisis, but he doesn't much believe in stare decisis. I'll put it that way. He is willing to go back and, uh, and, uh, and get it right, even if it's... Even it's even if we've gotten it wrong for a long, long time. I am, on the other hand, inclined to uh, acknowledge that any, any legal philosophy, whatever it is, has to make an exception for stare decisis. You cannot reinvent the wheel. So, you know, for example, uh, the, the, most of the decisions that have been made uh, erroneously under the Equal Protection Clause or the Eighth Amendment and whatnot, I'm willing to, you know, say, well, you know, it's water over the dam. Not all of them. Some of them I, 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 will, not, I will not accept. One of, one of the ones I won't accept is, is, uh, is Roe versus Wade or Casey, whatever, whatever the current uh, evolution of that is. Um, that's a special category of case that I cannot accept because it, it, it puts me in the position of being a legislator rather than a, uh, rather than a judge uh, when, when we have our next, uh, our next uh, um, abortion rights case. Uh, let's assume it's, a, it's a, a state statute that requires a certain staffing of, of uh, uh, abortion facilities. You need so many doctors, so many nurses. You need a, a certain uh, type of equipment, all of which makes it much more expensive to, to have an abortion. The question for me under Casey is, is this, uh, does this impose an undue burden on the woman's constitutional right to abortion. So I, you know, undue burden. What do I, I'm a lawyer. I run to the law books to look up undue. What do you know? No burden was an undue burden for, for several centuries. I can't use the law books. What do I use? What do I use? I, I mean, what do you think we're going to talk about when that next case comes up? I guarantee you, we're going to to sit around, the nine of us, and nobody else in the room, we say, let's see, nine doctors, five nurses. I don't think that's an undue burden. You think it's an undue burden? How many think it's an undue burden? Right, right. That's five. It's an undue burden. That's, That's not law, and I won't do that. So, that, you know, that's a category of case that I will not accept stare decisis on. But most of them I will. And, and we've, been, we've been going down the, the Commerce Clause thing for so long, I think it's too late to turn around. But the court often says that stare decisis is at its weakest in constitutional yeah, decisions. Because when the court gets it wrong, it stays wrong. That's true. Unless, you know, we can amend the Constitution or some other cumbersome way of uh, That's true. altering. But the court has not said it doesn't exist. No, no, I, I understand. Okay. But I guess that raises the question then of if you, you've given one explanation of why you would adhere to stare decisis in some instances and not in others. Right. But outside of that area, should we always... Should precedent bind us? Or under what circumstances should we abandon it? Well, of course it should normally bind. I mean, you know, when, when, when counsel gets up and, and is making a, an, an argument that a, that a certain statute is unconstitutional, am, am I supposed to interrupt and say, well, now, wait, wait, counsel. First of all, 
Are you sure we have a right to say that a statute enacted by Congress is unconstitutional? Let's think about that. You say, well, yes, well, Marbury versus... I know Marbury versus Madison, but was it right? <laughs> you, you cannot reinvent the wheel every time a case comes up. You have to accept the basic stuff that's, that's been around for a long time. So, if somebody came up from the basement of the White House, they found a, you know, a piece of paper down there demonstrating that Marbury versus Madison was wrong, I would shrug. Too late. <laughs> the society has moved on. I don't need to teach Marbury any longer in my Good. constitutional law class. <laughs> I take it. Um, but don't forget, Marbury was based upon the concept that when the court was deciding the Constitution, it was doing law. It was not doing sociology. The reason it was the responsibility of the court to apply the Constitution was because it was lawyers' work. It was lawyers' work. Now, the constitutions of some con uh, modern countries, uh, copying ours after World War II, they say the Supreme Court shall be the authoritative interpreter. But ours doesn't say that. The only reason we do it is because it's lawyers' work. And if it isn't lawyers' work, if it's philosophers' work or sociologists' work, we shouldn't be in the business. So if you believe in that evolutionary stuff, you, 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 you should think that Marbury was wrong and that Congress ought to be doing this stuff. There are lawyers, do a lot of lawyers work in countries other than the United States. Um, should we ever pay attention to the, their work product when it comes to constitutional decisions <laughs> in other countries? Well, I mean, it depends. It depends. If you're an originalist, of course not. What can, what can uh, the France's modern attitude towards the French Constitution have to say about what the framers of the American Constitution meant or what the American Constitution meant? But if you're an evolutionist, I guess that should be... Absolutely. If you're an evolutionist, uh, the world's your oyster. I mean, uh, <laughs> the, the, the evolutionist believes that the Constitution says what it ought to say. Well, let's look to what wise men and women in other countries think ought to be the law. So, you know, yeah, absolutely. All right. Uh, <laughs> uh, a staple of, of our constitutional jurisprudence, though is what you know we all sometimes refer to as tiered review the the sort of the notion that the default position is that, that actions of legislatures are valid and and uh, and unless they're not rationally related to some legitimate interest but under some circumstances we'll treat the work product of legislatures as being presumptively invalid a racial classification for example we apply strict scrutiny and we make the government prove a very strong justification um some people say that's breaking down. That 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 tiered review. You guys really don't do what you say you do. Uh, I, I'm, you I'm not even true? familiar with the terminology. Tiered review. Why oh, is it maybe, called tiered review? Oh, I was just make you weep. <laughs> no, no, no. T i e r, as oh, in you know the, the yeah. upper tier of the opera house. Uh, it might make you weep too. I mean, that's entirely possible. Uh, but what I meant to convey was the. The, the various standards of review that that you folks use to apply rational basis scrutiny yeah, yeah, or I, strict scrutiny or yeah. intermediate scrutiny. Yeah, right. Yeah, that, that's what we're <laughs> so, uh, Is that breaking down? We pretty much made it up. Uh, <laughs> yes, that's that's true. It's not the Constitution. Uh, 
Are you going to yeah. keep making it up? Or, uh... I have never been a fan of it, and uh, you know, it, 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 uh, partly it's breaking down because predictably it's uh, it's expanded. So you know, you have strict scrutiny, intermediate scrutiny. Should there be semi-intermediate scrutiny and whatnot? I mean, it's a it's a shell game of of, of loading. The, it's a thumb on the scale, and I don't think there ought to be a thumb on the scale. So how do we how do we go about then? And uh, uh, Professor Mitch Berman, at, uh, I believe he's at the University of Virginia, um, or at least his article was published in Virginia's Law Review, m- made the argument that there are constitutional operative provisions, and then there are decisional rules that implement them. We might, you know, for example, say uh, cruel and unusual punishments are prohibited, but we have to come up with some rules to figure out which ones. Now, originalism is one rule. But if we, if we abandon the various levels of judicial scrutiny, rational basis, strict, semi-intermediate, whatever, uh, what do we put in their place? I don't, why do you need anything in their place? Why, why can't you ask whether, whether this, this, uh, uh, this piece of legislation is unconstitutional? Why? Yeah, you have to come up with a reason. And if, if, if the, the only reason is that it treats uh, uh, taxpayers differently, some pay more money than others, the, the answer is that's not a good enough reason. You're permitted to discriminate uh, in the taxing, uh, in taxing on the basis of, uh, of wealth. I, I'm not sure the system would break down without, without these uh, uh, thumbs on the scale. I mean, you, 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 would, you would end up with the same need to show... Uh, justification for those provisions that, that run head-on against, uh, against provisions of the Constitution, such as discrimination on the basis of race. Of course, anything that overtly discriminates on the basis of race, I mean, if you want to call it strict scrutiny, you can call it that, but the simple fact is that the mere fact that it does that uh, it makes you think right at, right at the outset that it's, that it's no good. So unless a provision were to either conflict with, with the plain text of the Constitution or the original public meaning of the provisions of the Constitution, we should assume its validity and leave it to the representative branches. No, I, I, well, yeah. Uh, unless there is reason to believe that the provision of the Constitution was directed against this, which you know it was not. Nobody thought it was directed against sex discrimination. That's a that's a modern invention. I, there, there are those who th- think it shouldn't exist, and of course it shouldn't exist. But you don't need the Constitution. You don't have to distort the Constitution to achieve that result. What about something like the Ninth Amendment, which says that the enumeration of certain rights in the Constitution shall not be construed to deny or disparage the rights retained by the people? What does that mean? When, when I was in law school, if, if my life had depended upon telling you not what the Ninth Amendment meant, but what the Ninth Amendment was, <laughs> I wouldn't be here. <laughs> Nobody ever used the Ninth Amendment. I they mean, didn't teach it at Harvard back then. The court didn't. And all of a sudden, after, you know, the, 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 the total absurdity of substantive due process has, you know, be, be, be become obvious. Sub- substantive, you know, that's how we get Roe versus Wade and a lot of these in- invented uh, constitutional rights. Uh, it, it is the due process clause, which says no person shall be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, which is a procedural guarantee. Can you be deprived of life? Oh, yeah, but not without due process. Liberty, yeah, but not. You can be put in prison, but not without due process. 
But the Supreme Court has said, ah, there are some liberties that are so important that no process will suffice. I mean, you know, converting a procedural guarantee into a substantive guarantee. And law professors <laughs> walk around talking as though it made any sense of, of substantive process. What is substantive process? Close your eyes and try to imagine substantive process. <laughs> It's the opposite of procedural substance, if that will help. <laughs> you know, it's, it's totally absurd. And, and, and it, it has become increasingly obvious. So, we have to find another ship for all the rats to run over to. And there is the Ninth Amendment, which has been there. This huge uh, charter of responsibility to the Supreme Court that it has never used for 200 years what the Ninth Amendment meant to the framers was quite simply their belief in the natural law. And what it said is, look, it's simply because we've listed certain rights here that will be enforceable against the legislature by the courts. That doesn't mean there aren't other rights. For example, the right of a parent to dictate the education of the parent's children. We haven't mentioned that. Because our Bill of Rights, unlike the Bills of Rights of modern European countries, does not purport to be a compendium of all of mankind's rights. It, I mean, have you ever gone through the list? It's a weird list. <laughs> it, it doesn't include some very important things, such as a generalized right of privacy or the right of a parent to raise children the way the parents want. Those are very important. I, you know, I'd fight a revolution for those rights. But it does include, you know, the uh, uh, right to trial by jury in all matters at civil law involving more than, more than uh, uh, $20. You know, who cares? You know, you, you're going to fight and die for that one? No. So how do you explain it? What they picked were simply those rights that a tyrannical government had traditionally moved against. They don't care how Scalia raises his kids. But they do try to uh, impose religion. They do try to stifle speech. They conduct unreasonable searches and seizures. They want to get rid of juries and so forth and so on. That, that's how they were selected. It wasn't, uh, oh, all that's good and true and beautiful is contained within this Bill of Rights. Not at all. Nobody can regard it as having been intended to be that. And when you try to make it that, you're, 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 you're just distorting it. How did I get onto this? What was the well, question? Well, I, 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 I opened the door to the Ninth Amendment, which oh, is where, Amendment. Where, where the rats had fled to. That, Would the same be true of the... <laughs> All it meant to the framers was, we believe in the natural law. And just because there are some rights here doesn't mean that, that, that you cannot come before a legislature and say, I have a natural right to abortion. Or I have a natural right to this, that, or the other. I have a natural right to raise my children the way I want. Or for that matter, it doesn't say that you cannot engage in a revolution if that right is taken away from you. This is not meant to be uh, the, the totality of all human rights. That's all it meant. Is the privileges and, or immunities, privileges and immunities clause of the 14th Amendment a similar kind of 
refuge for expansive natural rights terminology? Yeah, that, 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 that's the next shift over. That the, right? <laughs> okay. Because, well, it, it interests you know, me. Uh, Brother Clarence uh, exactly. likes that, as, as you know. And, um, and you didn't join him in McDonald's. I didn't uh, join him. To tell you the truth, you, I don't... You, you grounded it on substantive due process. Indeed. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I, I told you that I accept stare decisis ah, from okay. <laughs> I'm not going to create any new stuff under substantive due process. I'm not going to invent but, new ones. But, uh, you know, most of the stuff that's there, you know. The incorporation. Water doctrine. over the dam. The incorporation. So you, you, is you, based on substantive due exactly. process. Of you, course it is. But you'd limit it to those textually uh, expressed rights in the Constitution. Yeah. yeah. Right. Okay. Right. Okay. Right. Uh, now, I, I don't. I have never done a, a an intensive study of the privileges and immunities clause for the simple reason that we've been living with substantive due process for what uh, uh, three quarters of a century, anyway. No, arguably even longer. Yeah. Argu- but, well, uh, Dred Scott was the first case yeah, that used yeah, it. Yeah. Lovely heritage, isn't it? Uh, um, well, I'd like to change our conversation a little bit from constitutional interpretation to uh, some of your thoughts about uh, you, you sometimes express thoughts about the culture in which we live for example in Lee against Weissman you wrote that we indeed live in a vulgar age now I don't disagree with you I quite strongly second that point of view I, I'm just curious what what you think accounts for our present civic vulgarity where anything seems to go Gee, I don't know. You know, I, I occasionally watch movies or television shows in which the F word is used constantly, not just by, you know, uh, mafiosi or drug addicts or, you know, uh, the criminal class, but by supposedly uh, uh, elegant, well-educated, well-to-do people. And they're going around using, I don't know where they get it from. I, I, the society I move in doesn't uh, behave that way. We're... we're, we're who imagines this? I have maybe here in California. I don't know. You, know, I don't know. you guys really talk this way? I, I just, I just do not know. Is this an expression of postmodernism? Do you think? You know, in Cohen against California, the uh, second justice Harlan said yeah. famously, "One man's vulgarity is another man's lyric." That's silly. <laughs> It's vulgarity. I think, period. on the other hand, that vulgarity is vulgarity. <laughs> All right. And All I will right. defend that position. And, and you know it when you see it. I take it. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> All right. Uh, you, you've said it, uh, that there are, uh, in a previous interview, you said that there, you thought that there were eras of genius. Uh, the 5th century BC, Athens for philosophy, the 15th century Florence for the arts. And 18th century America for government. I think that's true. Really so, do. what's our era? Are, are, are we? Well, not every era is an era of genius. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that goes along with this being a vulgar era. Yeah, I, I think, think that's you know, right. So. I mean, uh, no, but I, is there I, any hope for our era? Do you think? I mean, what, you know, if, if we're, yeah, I mean this seriously. It, is it, if we are indeed living in a vulgar age, if this is not an era of genius. Uh, I know you're you're a lawyer. You want to do lawyers' work, and I'm asking you to speculate about things that are beyond that. 
Well, well the, th- the thing I, I most worry about, uh, we will never be a, a distinguished age if we do not believe in excellence, if, 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 if we have a hostility towards, uh, uh, quote, elitism, the, the very notion that there are some modes of behavior, some uh, usages of language that are better than others, the very notion that anything is better than anything else. Uh, it, once you reject that notion, you're, you're, you're never going to improve. And I'm afraid uh, we, we, we have bought into that in, in, a, in a lot of fields. One man's vulgarity is another man's lyric. I mean, that's, that's terrible. I mean, what, what, what do you expect your language uh, to, to come to if, if you believe in that? But it's not true. There, there are dignified and excellent ways to behave, and there are uh, undignified and, and base ways to behave. And, and people who regularly do the former are better than people who regularly do the latter. And unless you believe that, you're going to have a, a vulgar society. You've been quoted um, as saying that the, the, the last lesson that you learned as a Georgetown undergraduate was not to separate your religious life from your intellectual life. Oh, it's a very Catholic thing. You don't want me to talk about well, that. Well, why not? That's, that's, that's part of who you are. And uh, you don't have to talk about it, but I'm, I'm curious. No, I'm not ashamed to talk about Good. it. Um, you... It was from the days when Georgetown was a very Catholic, uh, very Catholic school, and I often tell it to uh, uh, indicate how much things have changed. I was a history major, and in those days you had to take a... Uh, comprehensive oral examination in your major before you could graduate. So I go before this, uh, this board of, uh, of uh, uh, professors from the history department chaired by uh, Dr. Wilkinson, a, a layman, chairman, chair of the, of the history department. And he's giving me these questions for all the history I've learned. And I'm knocking them out of the ballpark. I'm really, ooh, I'm, I'm really feeling good. So, you know, the, the time is almost up. And he says, well, Mr. Scalia, that, you know, that's very good. You've done a very good job. I have one last question for you. You know, if you had to look back over all this history you learned here at Georgetown, I had to pick one event that was the most significant for mankind, what, it would, what would it be? And I'm feeling good. I'm saying, geez, he told me I've done terrific up to now, and there is no wrong answer to this one. I don't even remember what I answered. You know, Battle of Thermopylae, or, you know, I don't remember what. He shook his head very sadly. He said, no, Mr. Scalia, no. The incarnation, Mr. Scalia. Boom, it was like a sledgehammer hitting me on the head. Because, you know, you separate your, your religious life from your intellectual life. And I've never forgotten that lesson. Because so he was talking about history. He wasn't talking about religion. Yeah. You know, we had religion courses, but that, I mean, that's separate from history. And uh, I, it was a powerful lesson. Last thing I ever learned at Georgetown. So how does that manifest? If one keeps, uh, uh, I'm not just speaking of you, if one believes that one has an intellectual life in a spiritual or religious life and that they are not separate, but yet one is cast in a, role, in a secular role, do you have to consciously separate the two when you when you assume that secular role, or no, not at all? Any more than I, I have to consciously separate my social views that have nothing to do with religion. I, I'm, I'm not authorized to impose those on the society, and I'm not authorized to impose my religious views. I have them, 
but they they are not to play any role. You know, people often ask me, you know, you're you're a religious man. How do you think your Catholicism affects you? And I say, I I hope it doesn't affect you at all, except in one respect. I try to observe whatever commandment it is, sixth, seventh, no, not the sixth. Thou shalt not lie. I I try try to observe that faithfully. But other than that, there's nothing in my religious belief that that I hope has any effect upon my... uh, The other nine commandments are off limits? <laughs> I observe them personally, but I have no authority to impose them. Uh, I see. I see. You're, uh, you, the comment you made about "thou shalt not lie" is also a just, secular just me. I, I, I try to be honest yeah. in my opinions. I, I, yeah. I don't, you know, don't talk about substantive due process in that yeah. case. <laughs> No, you seem very honest in your opinions. And, and I must say, for those of us who, who read your opinions and teach them, uh, uh, I personally find they're very refreshing. Um, let me, um, do you have past justices of the court that you especially admire? Uh, I well, don't mean John, to talk about your John your Marshall, codes. of course, but, uh, but uh, in more recent times, uh, Robert Jackson. Robert Jackson. Uh, um, what, what about Jackson, especially? Like. Oh, he, he is a wonderful stylist. I don't think there's anybody who, who writes opinions as beautifully as he did. Well, Justice Scalia is a competitor. Well, yeah, I don't know. I don't think so. He, yeah. he is. And, you know, he was a self-educated man. He never, he never, never went to, not only never went to law school, you know, it was in the days when you could read law, but he never went to college. Yeah. And, I think he uh, did go to the Albany Law School. For one part. year or so, but yeah. I don't think yeah. he graduated. Yeah. But, uh, uh, Anyway, uh, I, and he's usually on the right side of things. Um, you, know, you read his opinion in, uh, in Korematsu. Uh, God, it's beautiful. Yeah. And uh, a number of other cases. Perhaps he's living proof of the adage that you don't want to let school interfere with your education. <laughs> probably right. But, uh, probably right. My father was a, was a college professor of Romance languages in the days when you had to take a language to graduate. So he had a lot of students who couldn't care less about Italian or French or Spanish, whatever he was teaching. And he was of the view that every American child should be endowed with a Bachelor of Arts degree at birth, thereby eliminating the necessity of their going to college, unless they were really interested in the intellectual life. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. Oh. <laughs> Uh, I, I hope we don't go so far as to endow everyone with a JD at birth, however. Oh, no, no. That put me out of a job. I put you out of Do you think contemporary legal scholarship has any significance to the bench or bar? Less and less. Uh, what has happened over the years is that uh, the uh, legal academy has grown away from the bar and, uh, and uh, grown towards the university. I think I'm right that the first law school, Harvard, was, was founded by the, by the bar. It didn't come out of the university. It came out of the bar. And uh, over the years, uh, I don't know whose fault it is. Uh, maybe it's the bar's fault. Maybe it's the academic's fault. But uh, more and more, uh, the law schools uh, uh, regard themselves as much closer to the university than they are to the, uh, to the practice. And uh, you go back and look at the law reviews, uh, the kind of articles they used to carry 50 years ago were, were of some practical use. You know, uh, analysis of uh, uh, um, the, the treatment of certain issues by courts around the country. Um, there's not much of that stuff anymore. And it's sort of looked down upon. And it's highly philosophical, abstract. It's... Uh, uh, you read these pieces, they are just uh, you know, philosophers talking to each other. Uh, 
which I guess is okay, but uh, in some law schools, I, I have no reason to think this is one of them. I hope it isn't. Uh, there is on the faculties a positive contempt for the practice, even though uh, their students are mostly going to go into the practice. Um, when I when I was uh, on the faculty at Chicago, it and I was on the uh, on the appointments committee. It was not uncommon that you, you keep an eye on your own graduates because they always have mm -hmm. a, a certain affection to come back to them to, to their old alma mater. But you know, we'd keep an eye on graduates, and sometimes uh, a person's name would come up. Should we approach this person? And we would say, "No, yeah, let's let, let her practice for you know a couple more years, get some seasoning." Boy, that doesn't happen anymore. You you have to go go into law school, uh, go, go go into the uh, uh, job market in academia. What within two years after you're out, or, or somehow your damaged goods, you've been practicing law. Not, uh, and that's too bad. That is really too bad. I had uh, almost seven years of practice before before I I went into teaching at the University of Virginia. Uh, so that's changed, and, and I I think it's it's partly the bar's fault. The bar the bar ought to pay more attention to bringing bringing uh, young professors into the uh, into the activities of the bar, uh, law reform, and and so forth. Mm -hmm. Take a professor to lunch. I tell him that all the time. Uh, sure, all for that. <laughs> what What did you most enjoy about teaching when you you know you you were taught at the you know, University of Virginia and the University of Chicago and later at Chicago? Yeah. Um, um, I I um, the only the only thing I didn't enjoy was grading the doggone exams. Yeah, that, that's I mean, that's, I, that's still true. I love the classroom. I like to try to explain uh, um, abstruse things and try to make them clear. Uh, um, I, I like the freedom of, of, of researching what I want to research and not not what some uh, uh, advocate shoves under my nose. Uh, I mean, that's a great luxury. It really yeah. is. Yeah. Not to mention, you know, working only four hours a week. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's the canard. <laughs> yeah, that's what my friends in practice say, too. Uh, I'm sorry. Well, you only work a few months a year, too. <laughs> we are always in session. <laughs> I see. Okay. Uh, that's true. Okay. Oh, uh, you know, you uh, you seem to inspire in some people. I, I think this is probably people who've never met you, because. Uh, but I, of those people who have never met you, you seem oftentimes to inspire either love or hate. Why do you think that's so? Is it because you're outspoken? Because you because you don't lie? <laughs> I don't know. I I, I think um, I think my views are. Uh, uh, often misrepresented, and uh, people have a misimpression of, uh, of, of what I what I would do. Um, as a result of which, uh, I, you know, I, I, I often make a terrific impression because people expect me to have uh, horns and a tail. And when I don't, gee, what a great guy he is! You know, I'm actually not that good, but uh, you know. Uh, I, yeah, I blame it on misrepresenting my position. Yeah, okay. And that, I'm sticking with that. All right. <laughs> All right. Well, 
I'll go back to originalism of sorts. That's a question that uh, one of my colleagues actually wanted to be sure that I asked you. And that is, if you'd been alive in 1788, do you think you'd have been a Federalist or an Anti-Federalist? This is, of course, imaginary because we're not alive in 1788. I would have been a Federalist. In fact, uh, you know, I was, I was one of, I was the faculty advisor for the f- one of the f- two first chapters of the Federalist Society. The chapter at Chicago was, was founded when I was on the faculty, and, and uh, the people who started it came to They needed a faculty sponsor, and I was the faculty sponsor. And I spoke at the first national uh, convention of the Federalist Society, not a very large affair, which was at Yale, as I recall. And what I spoke to at that was the absolute absurdity of, of the hostility that many of the young Federalists had towards the federal government. I mean, you're Federalist for Pete's sake. It means, it, it means that you should like the federal government for what the federal government ought to be doing. Dislike it for the stuff that it shouldn't be doing, but don't dump on, uh, you know, on, on federalism as such. No, I would have been a federalist. There okay. were good reasons to have the federal government, and it's, it's, it's good that we have it, and by and large, it's done good things for, for us and for the world. Do you think federalism, the, the principle of federalism, uh, you know, the allocation of authority between the federal government and the states, do you think that should be primarily enforced by the political process or, or, or by the judicial, uh, uh, by the courts? Ooh. Well, I think, um, look, it, you're, you're crazy if you think. Now, I, I, sometime when I teach separation of powers, I, I put this question, you know, who, who do you think is the protector of the states within our structure of government? Who protects the states? And sometimes they would say, whoa, well, the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court is going to protect the states? I'm a Fed. I'm appointed by a federal president, confirmed by a federal senate. Why? Federal power is my power. Why should I have any incentive to protect the states? To, to, to give the protection of the states over to a, a federally constituted Supreme Court is crazy. And the framers were not that stupid. The protection for the states in the Constitution was eliminated by the 17th Amendment. It was the fact that the states used to own the uh, Senate. The Senate was elected by the state legislatures. You realize what a difference that is? Nothing could get through. The, the, no law could be passed if it, if it, if it you know, came down on the states. That we, we tossed that away in, in, uh, thoughtlessly, I think. And, and you can trace the decline of so-called states' rights from, the, uh, from 1913 when the 17th Amendment was eliminated. So, you know, you can go around wringing your hands about states' rights and whatnot, but the, the essential structure of the Constitution that protected the states is not there. And occasionally you will get a Supreme Court, a quirky Supreme Court, that will indeed uh, uh, vindicate states' rights, like holding that uh, uh, the Commerce Clause do not allow you to regulate the use of a gun in a schoolyard, which has nothing to do with commerce. But uh, over the long haul, you cannot expect the Supreme Court to protect the states. So I don't, I don't know who, who, who should protect the states. When you say the political uh, system, I mean, I don't think the political system will achieve that. 
the Virginia, there are certain legislators in Virginia who have been proposing most recently what they call the uh, repeal amendment. Yeah, I just read uh, about that. The yeah, yeah. Tell them about that. That's a good amendment. Yeah. Well, okay. Well, I'm, then I want to hear you t- talk about <laughs> The repeal amendment is, would be a proposal that would give uh, two-thirds of the states, if they unite in, in passing the same uh, measure, to repeal a specifically identified law or regulation, that it would be repealed. And thus, having been repealed, Congress could repass it, I suppose, subject to presidential signature. But it would give two-thirds of the states, if they unite in a particular course of action, the ability to repeal federal legislation. It's very imaginative. I, I, yeah, I think so, too. What do you th- apart from being imaginative, do you think it's a good idea? I don't know. I have to think about it. Okay, okay. Um, it's uh, well. We'll just leave that for all of us to chew on. <laughs> uh, um, I've encountered people who characterize the religion clauses as guaranteeing freedom from religion. I've actually heard that. Yeah, how would you respond to such a person? Freedom from religion. They say that's what the religion clauses protect. Is well, that what it protects? Cer- I, th- I certainly think, at least as it has been, uh, as they have been interpreted, it certainly uh, ensures freedom from establishment. Although that, that's not what they originally, as you know, that's not what they originally meant. I mean, the establishment clause is very carefully worded. It, it is not that uh, Congress shall not establish a religion. It is Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion which originally meant they would neither establish a church nor disestablish a church because uh, several of the states had established churches, congregationalism in in New England and uh, 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 Anglicanism in Virginia. uh, And and, uh, the purpose of that was to make sure that Congress would, uh, would leave that be. But over the years, the uh, the Establishment Clause has come to mean that uh, that uh, uh, the establishment of religion is forbidden. So, in that case, in, in that sense, it does uh, it does uh, ensure uh, freedom from religion, from having an established religion imposed upon you. No, I think when I've heard that phrase, I've. I've usually in- interpreted to mean that that it's a guarantee of a secular society. Oh, I don't think no. I, I don't think it was ever thought of as a guarantee of that. Um, the, the, the very fact that you should select uh, freedom of religion as as one of the few freedoms that are identified in the Bill of Rights uh, shows quite the contrary that uh, religion was specially favored by the uh, by the framers. Um, we, we, we are not, uh, we are not uh, the nations of Europe that were conquered by Napoleon. Um, well, I'll tell the story. I think I wrote it in one of my opinions, I remember. On 9-11, I was, um, uh, I was at a conference in Rome. I had just arrived. I was unpacking... Uh, Maureen and I were unpacking our suitcases with the television on, and we're seeing these planes go into the Twin Towers. That night, the president gave, uh, uh, gave an address to the people, and uh, he ended it the way our presidents uh, usually end their addresses, you know, God bless America. The next morning, one of the other judges at, at the conference from one of the European countries that I won't identify 
uh, came up to me and he said, you know, I uh, saw the tape of the speech and uh, it was a wonderful speech. How I wish that the president or the prime minister of my country at a time of national emergency or disaster could say, God bless, but absolutely forbidden to invoke the deity in, in, in Germany, in, uh, in Italy. No Italian politician will do it. You're, you're just not allowed to. Uh, it is called le, le, uh, secularism. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in, in the countries conquered by Napoleon, that, that was the deal. Drive religion from the public square. It is supposed to have nothing. That is not us. It has never been us. Now, it's, it's a possible way to do things. And there are people who, who, like, who like it that way. That's fine if, if you don't have to have religion in the public square, I suppose. Uh, if you want to make a proposal that we adopt that kind of a society, fine. But don't tell me that the framers of the American Constitution ever had that in mind. They didn't. Uh, quite, quite to the contrary. They, they, they gave religion a, a special status. You can't impose it on people. But, but on the other hand, uh, we've always had... Uh, it's been part of our political life. Always. It's still, I mean, my court begins its session. God save the United States in this honorable court. It's not unconstitutional. And I also said that, uh, <laughs> I think I put this in the opinion, one of, uh, one, one famous statesman, it's been attributed to a lot of people, Bismarck among them, but I think it, it fits best in the mouth of Charles de Gaulle. He is supposed to have said on one occasion, God protects little children, drunkards, and the United States of America. <laughs> and I think one of the reasons is we, 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 do, we do him honor, as many of the countries of the world do not. In, in the affirmative action, race-based uh, preferences, whatever you want to call it, uh, have been around now for some time, and they're volatile and controversial. And and you've you have a, a clearly expressed view on that. You've written, among other things, that under our constitution there can be no such thing as a debtor or creditor race. Yet I think it's probably fair to say that there are many Americans who think that African Americans and other minorities have been systematically disadvantaged by American law and society, and that the majority owes for lack of a better word, reparations of some kind. How would you reply to such a person? I have have no problem with helping the disadvantaged, but uh, uh, I'm talking about racial entitlement, that somehow you're setting the record right by uh, enabling the, uh, the, the, the children of black professionals in Chicago uh, to have uh, preference in admissions to uh, to the best colleges. I mean, these are not people who are disadvantaged. To to help the disadvantaged, you, you don't have to use race as a basis. In fact, if 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 blacks have been uh, uh, held back and continue to be held back, they 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 will be among the most disadvantaged. And and simply. Uh, uh, scholarship programs that aid the disadvantaged will disproportionately aid the blacks. 
Once you depart from that, you're engaging in racial entitlements, that each race is entitled to a certain slice of the pie. And once you get into that game, you, you will never get out of it. You will never get out of it. Those countries that have gone into racial entitlement have, have lived to regret it, and, and you cannot abolish it once, uh, once that's been generally accepted. So, I don't know. Justice O'Connor said, how many years do we have left? She said 25 years. Oh, uh, let's see. That was in Grutter, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. That's a few years ago. We've yeah. got 20-some years left, I think. Probably uh, less than 20, maybe. Yeah. Uh, it's wonderful to be on the Supreme Court. I can say, you know, 15 years, 10 years, whatever. They don't know what we're talking about. Yes, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's true. We're, we apologize. Uh, <laughs> Justice O'Connor said in... In her uh, majority opinion in Greta against Bollinger that, you know, there's another 25 years for affirmative action. Yeah, it, um, it's not permanently okay, but for another 25, 25 years, years it's okay. Um, so is that sort of a prescriptive easement? Uh, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. Okay. Um, let me think. You mentioned 9-11 in your, in your comments about uh, religion. Um, how much do you think that decisions in cases like uh, Holder against Humanitarian Law Project, which was decided this past this past term, I think, in which the court upheld the the uh, provisions of federal law that prohibit expert advice or assistance to designated terrorist organizations, uh, held that that's not a violation of free speech? How much do you think those, that decision might was affected by 9/11? Would it come out the same way if that had come up uh, in 1990? Well, I think uh, the, the reasonableness of restrictions on speech always depends upon what the situation you're dealing with is. I mean, certain words that are fine in, 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 in a calm uh, uh, setting are, are incitement to riot uh, in a different setting. I, 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 don't, I don't know that that's, uh, that that's so remarkable. How about, how about Koran burning? You know, that fellow down in Florida who was going to have a bonfire of the Korans. Uh, Given the inflammatory, I think it was just one of them. I think it was just was one. it just one? I thought I it was a whole so. ton of was them, it? but no, I didn't know. But however many, I assume even yeah. a single Quran would probably yeah. being burned would probably be uh, quite inflammatory to what may be the overly sensitive conscience of of Muslims around the world. But but given that reality, is is Quran burning an exception to the? Well, unless it's going to cause a riot here immediately, brand which, which the police cannot, uh, cannot effectively stop, no. Okay. Maybe a very bad idea, but, you know, a lot of stupid stuff is perfectly constitutional there. Huh? I think it was Winston Churchill who once said that wherever there's a lot of free speech, there's a lot of stupid speech. Of course. And, 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 and it's no justification for the speech. I'm always amazed. People go around and say, well, it's okay. He was exercising his First Amendment rights, you know, as though, uh, as though rights are like muscles. The more you use them, the better it is. <laughs> and indeed, he could be executing his, uh, exercising his First Amendment, but he's an idiot. Okay. You know? <laughs> All right. And a, uh, another one of my colleagues uh, thinks that in the area of criminal procedure, 
You you adhere much less to original meaning than in other areas of constitutional interpretation. Why? You think that's so? Oh, I hope not. Well, I don't know. You know, give me give some examples. See how you react to it. And the Kylo case, where thermal imaging was done from a public street, as uh, a search requiring a war. It's one of those areas where new technology requires you to to to, to, right. to figure the trajectory of the original uh, Fourth Amendment. And, uh, you know, I, I, I figured it the best I can. I think that, uh, that that was a search in the House. Mm-hmm. Well, how about a case like Crawford, where I think you wrote for the majority that confrontation, the confrontation clause, which requires confrontation of a witness, requires that hearsay and other witness not present, ev- not present evidence be barred, but only if it's testimonial, which is a word that's not found in the Sixth Amendment. Oh, no, but that's, that's what witness meant. So right. we can extract you, you, from... You get right. there from the word witness. Right. Oh, God. That, if there was any purely uh, originalist opinion, it's, it's Crawford. Uh, okay. uh, unless it's the Second Amendment case, which is also pure uh, originalism. All right. All right. So you're consistent across the board. I try to be. I, yeah, you know, I mean, if, if you right. show me that, that that's what it meant, and, you know, there is not a, a, a long tradition of, uh, of ignoring it, uh, which I feel stare decisis uh, obliges me to accept, uh, yeah, you got me. Okay. I mean, just a couple of things that I, I was you like. You have something up your sleeve now. No, you no, no, no. I have, I have something up my sleeve when I teach, but I don't, I don't have anything up my sleeve with you. All my cards are on the table. Uh, I'm curious. I've always liked this quote. It was attributed to uh, Yale law professor Grant Gilmore, who at the end of a lecture he gave on Aegis of American Law, said that uh, in heaven there will be no law. My favorite quote. Uh, don't you like that? In, yes. uh, let, me, let me share it with you all. In heaven the, there will be no law. And the lion, and the lion will, will lie, lie down, down with, with the lamb. And in, in hell, hell there will be nothing but law. <laughs> and, 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 and due process will be rigorously observed. <laughs> So you want to expand on that? You want, to, <laughs> want to add some gloss to Gilmore? Well, it's, it's, a, it's a reality that those institutions that we care most about, family, church, are destroyed by the law. When the law enters in, it destroys them. And uh, all, all religions uh, have, have this notion that at the end, the laws will be eliminated. You'll be freed from the law. Uh, no, the, the, the law is, is, is a, a, as Madison put it, a concession to the weakness of human nature. If men were angels, we would need no laws. Uh, so, uh, you know, I don't go around celebrating the need for a lot of laws, but... Uh, no, that's a great line by Grant. So, one of the things we should derive from that, I suppose, it would be that that we should shape our laws to create spaces for these non-legal institutions to affect our lives and shape our society? Would that be fair to say? I think that's right. I think we should be very careful about, uh, about the laws intruding into, into, into the, those sorts of institutions, which, which I think we have been. I think we're, uh, we, 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 we don't allow the law to... Uh, get into family matters too much unless the child's being physically abused. Mm -hmm. There's another quote that's, I don't know if I like it as much as Grant Gilmore's, but it's uh, 
uh, two of them that are Holmes. Holmes is very quotable. And uh, he once wrote that the life of the law has not been logic, it has been experience. And then he also said in another setting, a page of hit on this point, well, yeah, we yeah, forget yeah. what that point is, he, a page of history is worth a volume of logic. Yeah. Well, Do you agree with that? Yeah. I think it depends on, on, on what you're talking about. Uh, if, if you're talking about uh, the original meaning of the Constitution, of course, history is... Uh, uh, says what it what it meant, but if you're talking about applying uh, applying the Constitution to events, uh, uh, phenomena that didn't occur at the time, if you're talking about establishing a a, a a realistic law that that can be followed by by the lower courts, the only tools you have are log- is is logic. I mean, uh, logic is essential to uh, to a a, a genuine uh, system of laws. If you're not bound by logic, uh, you, you just have random, random decisions by judges who think this ought to be the case or that ought to be the case. It is reason and logic that provides order and, and, and justice, fairness. So the evolutionists are, are not logical, then, I take it. Well, I guess you, you could be a logical evolutionist until you, until you uh, adopt your, your, your next evolution. I mean, you know. <laughs> iterative logic. Yeah. All right. Uh, I believe you're you're an only child, are you not? Oh, don't rub it in. No, no, no. <laughs> I, I, I'm the father of an only child, okay. so well, I, I, we have some sort always, of commonality. Yeah, yeah my, uh, my wife is always pointing that out. Oh, is she? Well, and she says about my, you know modern China with their, with their one-child policy and, and the aborting of a lot of females. Can you imagine a whole nation of only sons? God. A frightening, a frightening thought. <laughs> well, you may have answered the question I was going to ask you, which is, uh, how do you think you've been shaped by being an only child? You know, I mean, it's hard to know since you've never it's, had any other experience. But it's hard to know. I, I know my my mother spent an awful lot of time, which I didn't realize at the time, uh, making sure that I did the right things and hung hung with the right people and, and so forth. Which. Uh, you're, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, that's all. I, what, um, you, you more or less grew up in New York City, I believe. I mean, I yeah. think born in Trenton, but then moved to Moved to, to New York Queens when I was or, in kindergarten, lived yeah. in Queens. It was a great place to grow up in those days. Yeah, really and was. New York's a special place, it to is. be sure. Absolutely. I resent uh, the fact that my kids haven't grown up there. Um, because, so, you know, if you make it there, you make it anywhere. <laughs> I think that's true. <laughs> but, but my question is a little more frivolous than that, really. It's a, a lot of people, including one of my best friends who's a son of a first-generation Italian immigrant from, and who grew up in New York, claims that the best pizza is from Naples. And being a, a child of Sicilian immigrants and a product of New York City, well, what do you think? Oh, I, that's, that, that is unquestionably true. How does New York City pizza rate? I think it's, it's close to Naples. It is infinitely better than Washington. <laughs> <laughs> and infinitely better than Chicago. You know, these deep dish pizzas there. That's not pizza. It's not pizza. It's very good. But why do you have to call it pizza? Yeah. Call, call it a tomato pie or something. You know? <laughs> All right. I'm a traditionalist. What can I tell you? <laughs> Are you... Uh, are you still a New York Yankee fan? Absolutely. You, you spent three years at, at Harvard. That couldn't convert no, you to the Red Sox? No. <laughs> More 
Maureen, however, is a Red Sox fan. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. How's, how's your marriage? <laughs> <laughs> Well, we had our 50th anniversary last uh, last weekend. Congratulations. So it's, it's, yeah. it's yeah. uh, you know, I, I, I thought on that occasion, speaking of the, uh, the nature of our, our modern society, yeah. I am sure that that was once simply a celebration of longevity. Okay, it has turned into a celebration of fidelity. Yes, but that—that's that, a—that's a comment on on yeah. the state of our modern society. What would let me? I think I might wind it up with this. What would you think is your proudest achievement? Whoa. <laughs> Well, look, I have nine kids, and I, uh, I'm not sure it's my achievement. Uh, it's much more Maureen's, who's, who's not the fact of having them, but the fact of, of raising them uh, to be, uh, you know, good, good human beings that I'm proud of. Uh, that's probably more Maureen's uh, work than mine. But I, I'd have to say that that's, that's uh, what, I'm, what I'm most proud of, my family. Um, and in my own professional life, I, I, I like to think that I have uh, 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 brought to the fore at least discussion about uh, more traditional ways of interpreting the Constitution that used to be orthodoxy. I mean, originalism was, is not new. It's, it's, it's old. It, it, it used to be orthodox. Um, I, I don't think uh, I've, I've persuaded even a majority of the court much less a majority of the professoriate uh, to uh, accept originalism, but it's, uh, I've, I've uh, brought it into the uh, into the discussion anyway, and I'm, I'm I'm proud of that. Well, we thank you very very much for Glad being here. here. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.